0: Thank you so much for joining me for another relaxing literature podcast. Today we're beginning part two of the book Little Women by Louisa May Alcott. This has also been published under the title of Good Wives. This is chapter 24, Gossip. In order that we may start afresh and go to Meg's wedding with free minds, will be well to begin with a little gossip about the Marches. The three years that have passed have brought but few changes to the quiet family. The war is over, and Mr. March safely back at home, busy with his books and the small parish which found him a minister by nature as by grace, a quiet, studious man, rich in the wisdom that is better than learning, the charity which calls all mankind brother brother, the piety that blossoms into character, making it august and lovely. To outsiders, the five energetic women seemed to rule the house, and so they did in many things, but the quiet scholar sitting among his books was still the head of the family, the household conscience, anchor, and comforter, for to him the busy, anxious women always turned in troublous times. Mrs. March is as brisk and cheery, though rather grayer than when we first saw her, and just now so absorbed in Meg's affairs that the hospitals and homes still full of wounded boys and soldiers' widows decidedly miss the motherly missionaries' visits. John Brooke did his duty manfully for a year, got wounded, was sent home, and not allowed to return. He received no stars or bars, but he deserved them. For he cheerfully risked all he had, and life and love are very precious when both are in full bloom. Perfectly resigned to his discharge, he devoted himself to getting well, preparing for business, and earning a home for Meg. With the good sense and sturdy independence that characterized him, he refused Mr. Lawrence's more generous offers, and accepted the place of bookkeeper, feeling better satisfied to begin with an honestly earned salary than by running any risks with borrowed money. Meg had spent the time in working as well as waiting, growing womanly in character, wise in housewifely arts, and prettier than ever, for love is a great beautifier. She had her girlish ambitions and hopes, and felt some disappointment at the humble way in which the new life must begin. Ned Moffat had just married Sally Gardiner, and Meg couldn't help contrasting their fine house and carriage, many gifts and splendid outfit with her own, and secretly wishing that she could have the same. But somehow envy and discontent soon vanished when she thought of all the patient love and labor John had put into the little home awaiting her, and when they sat together in the twilight, talking over their small plans— the future always grew so beautiful and bright that she forgot Sally's splendor and felt herself the richest, happiest girl in Christendom. Jo never went back to Aunt March, for the old lady took such a fancy to Amy that she bribed her with the offer of drawing lessons from one of the best teachers going, and for the sake of this advantage Amy would have served a far harder mistress, so she gave her mornings to duty, her afternoons to pleasure, and prospered finally. Jo, meantime, devoted herself to literature and Beth, who remained delicate long after the fever was a thing of the past, not an invalid exactly, but never again the rosy, healthy creature she had been, yet always hopeful, happy, and serene, and busy with the quiet duties she loved, everyone's friend, and an angel in the house long as the spread eagle paid her a dollar a column for her rubbish, as she called it, Jo felt herself a woman of means, and spun her little romances diligently. But great plans fermented in her busy brain and ambitious mind, and the old tin kitchen in the garret held a slowly increasing pile of blotted manuscript, which was one day to place the name of March upon the roll of fame. "'Laurie,' having dutifully gone to college to please his grandfather, was now getting through it in the easiest possible manner to please himself. A universal favorite, thanks to money, manners, much talent, and the kindest heart that ever got its owner into scrapes by trying to get other people out of them, he stood in great danger of being spoiled, and probably would have been, like many another promising boy, if he had not possessed a talisman against evil in the memory— Of the kind old man who was bound up in his success, the motherly friend who watched over him as if he were her own son, and last but not least by any means, the knowledge that four innocent girls loved, admired, and believed in him with all their hearts. Being only a glorious human boy, of course he frolicked and flirted, grew dandified, aquatic, sentimental, or gymnastic, as college fashions ordained, hazed and was hazed, talked slang, and more than once came perilously near suspension and expulsion. But as high spirits and the love of fun were the causes of these pranks, he always managed to save himself by frank confession, honorable atonement, or the irresistible power of persuasion which he possessed in perfection. In fact, He rather prided himself on his narrow escapes, and liked to thrill the girls with graphic accounts of the triumphs over wrathful tutors, dignified professors, and vanquished enemies. The men of my class were heroes in the eyes of the girls, who never wearied of the exploits of our fellows, and were frequently allowed to bask in the smiles of these great creatures when Laurie brought them home with him. Amy especially enjoyed this high honour and became quite a belle among them, for her ladyship early felt and learned to use the gift of fascination with which she was endowed. Meg was too much absorbed in her private and particular John to care for any other lords of creation, and Beth too shy to do more than peep at them and wonder how Amy dared to order them about so, But Jo felt quite in her own element and found it difficult to refrain from imitating the gentlemanly attitudes, phrases, and feats which seemed more natural to her than the decorums prescribed for young ladies. They all liked Joe immensely, but never fell in love with her, though very few escaped without paying the tribute of a sentimental sigh or two at Amy's shrine. And speaking of sentiment brings us very naturally to the dovecote. Coat. That was the name of the little house Mr. Brooke had prepared for Meg's first home. Laurie had christened it, saying it was highly appropriate to the gentle lovers who went on together like a pair of turtle doves with first a bill and then a coo. It was a tiny house with a little garden behind and a lawn about as big as a pocket handkerchief in the front. Here Meg meant to have a fountain, shrubbery, and a profusion of lovely flowers just at present the fountain was represented by a weather-beaten urn, very like a dilapidated slop-bowl. The shrubbery consisted of several young larches, undecided whether to live or die, and the profusion of flowers was merely hinted by regiments of sticks to show where seeds were planted, but inside it was altogether charming, and the happy bride saw no fault from garret to cellar. To be sure— the hall was so narrow it was fortunate that they had no piano, for one never could have been got in whole. The dining-room was so small that six people were a tight fit, and the kitchen stairs seemed built for the express purpose of precipitating both servants and china pell-mell into the coal bin. But once get used to these slight blemishes and nothing could be more complete— good sense and good taste had presided over the furnishing, and the result was highly satisfactory. There were no marble-topped tables, long mirrors, or lace curtains in the little parlor, but simple furniture, plenty of books, a fine picture or two, a stand of flowers in the bay window, and scattered all about the pretty gifts which came from friendly hands, and were fairer for the loving messages they brought. Everything was done at last, even to Amy's arranging different colored soaps to match the different colored rooms, and Beth's setting the table for the first meal. "'Are you satisfied? Does it seem like home? And do you feel as if you should be happy here?' asked Mrs. March, as she and her daughter went through the new kingdom arm in arm, for just then they seemed to cling together more tenderly than ever. "'Yes, mother, perfectly satisfied thanks to you all,' "'and so happy that I can't talk about it,' answered Meg. "'If only she had a servant or two, it would be all right,' said Amy, coming out of the parlor. "'Mother and I have talked that over, and I have made up my mind to try her way first. "'There will be so little to do that with Lottie to run my errands and help me here and there, "'I shall only have enough work to keep me from getting lazy or homesick,' answered Meg tranquilly. "'Sally Moffat has four began Amy. If Meg had four, the house wouldn't hold them, and master and missus would have to camp in the garden, broke in Joe, who enveloped in a big blue pinafore was giving the last polish to the door-handles. Sally isn't a poor man's wife, and many maids are in keeping with her fine establishment. Meg and John begin humbly, but I have a feeling there will be quite as much happiness in this little house as in the big one. "'It's a great mistake for young girls like Meg to leave themselves nothing to do but dress, give orders, and gossip. "'When I was first married, I used to long for my new clothes to wear out or get torn, "'so that I might have the pleasure of mending them, "'for I got heartily sick of doing fancy work and tending to my pocket-handkerchief. "'Why didn't you go into the kitchen and make messes, as Sally says she does to amuse herself, "'though they never turn out well, and the servants laugh at her,' said Meg." I did, after a while, not to mess, but to learn of Hannah how things should be done, that my servants need not laugh at me. It was play then, but there came a time when I was truly grateful that I not only possessed the will but the power to cook wholesome food for my little girls, and help myself when I could no longer afford to hire help. You begin at the other end, Meg, dear, but the lessons you learn now will be of use to you by and by when John is a richer man— "'for the mistress of a house, however splendid, "'should know how work ought to be done "'if she wishes to be well and honestly served. "'Yes, mother, I'm sure of that,' said Meg, "'listening respectfully to the little lecture, "'for the best of women will hold forth "'upon the all-absorbing subject of housekeeping. "'Do you know I like this room most of all in my baby-house?' "'added Meg a minute after, as they went upstairs "'and she looked into her well-stored linen closet.' Beth was there, laying the snowy piles smoothly on the shelves, and exulting over the goodly array. All three laughed as Meg spoke, for that linen closet was a joke. You see, having said that if Meg married that brook, she shouldn't have a cent of her money, Aunt March was rather in a quandary when time had appeased her wrath and made her repent her vow. She never broke her word, and was much exercised in her mind how to get around it, and at last devised a plan whereby she could satisfy herself. Mrs. Carroll, Florence's mama, was ordered to buy half-made and marked a generous supply of house-and-table linen, and sent it to her as a present, all of which was faithfully done, but the secret leaked out, and was greatly enjoyed by the family, for Aunt March tried to look utterly unconscious— and insisted that she could give nothing but the old fashioned pearls long promised to the first bride. That's a housewifely taste which I am glad to see. I had a young friend who set up housekeeping with six sheets, but she had finger bowls for company, and that satisfied her, said Mrs. March, patting the damask table cloths. I haven't a single finger bowl, but this is a set out that will last me all my days, Hannah says, and Meg looked quite contented, as well as she might. A tall, broad-shouldered young fellow with a cropped head, a felt basin of a hat, and a flyaway coat, came tramping down the road at a great pace, walked over the low fence without stopping to open the gate, straight up to Mrs. March with both hands out, and a hearty, "'Here I am, mother. Yes, it's all right.' The last words were in answer to the look the elder lady gave him, a kindly, questioning look, which the handsome eyes met so frankly that the little ceremony closed, as usual, with a motherly kiss. Bless you, Beth, what a refreshing spectacle you are, Joe. Amy, you are getting altogether too handsome for a single lady. As Laurie spoke, he delivered a brown paper parcel to Meg, pulled Beth's hair-ribbon, stared at Joe's big pinafore, and fell into an attitude of mock rapture before Amy. "'then shook hands all round, and everyone began to talk. "'Where is John?' asked Meg anxiously. Stopped to get the license for tomorrow, ma'am.' "'Which side won the last match, Teddy?' inquired Joe, "'who persisted in feeling an interest in manly sports despite her nineteen years. "'Ours, of course, wish she'd been there to see. "'How is the lovely Miss Randall?' asked Amy with a significant smile." "'More cruel than ever. Don't you see how I'm pining away?' said Laurie, and he gave his broad chest a sounding slap and heaved a melodramatic sigh. "'I wonder if you will ever grow up, Laurie,' said Meg, in a matronly tone. "'I'm doing my best, ma'am, but can't get much higher, I'm afraid, as six feet is about all men can do in these degenerate days,' responded the young gentleman, whose head was about level with the little chandelier." "'I suppose it would be profanation to eat anything in this spick-and-span bower, "'so as I'm tremendously hungry, I propose an adjournment. "'Mother and I are going to wait for John. "'There are some last things to settle,' said Meg, bustling away. "'Beth and I are going over to Kitty Bryant's to get more flowers for tomorrow,' added Amy. "'Come, Joe, don't desert a fellow. "'I'm in such a state of exhaustion I can't get home without your help.' "'Now, Teddy, I want to talk seriously with you about tomorrow,' began Joe, as they strolled away together. "'You must promise to behave well and not cut up any pranks and spoil our plans. "'Not a prank. And don't say funny things when we ought to be sober. I never do. You are the one for that. "'And I implore you not to look at me during the ceremony. I shall certainly laugh if you do.' won't see me, you'll be crying so hard that the thick fog round you will obscure the prospect. I say, Joe, how is Grandpa this week? Pretty amiable? Very. Why, have you got into a scrape and want to know how he'll take it? asked Joe rather sharply. Now, Joe, do you think I'd look your mother in the face and say, all right, if it wasn't? No, I don't. Then don't go and be suspicious. "'I only want some money,' said Laurie, walking on again, appeased by her hearty tone. "'You spend a great deal, Teddy. Bless you, I don't spend it. It spends itself somehow, and is gone before I know it. I don't see the use of your having seventeen waistcoats, endless neckties, and a new hat every time you come home. I thought you'd got over the dandy period, but every now and then it breaks out in a new spot.' Just now it's the fashion to be hideous, to make your head look like a scrubbing brush, wear a straight jacket, orange gloves, and clumping square-toed boots. If it was cheap ugliness, I'd say nothing, but it cost as much as the other, and I don't get any satisfaction out of it. Laurie threw back his head, and laughed so heartily at this attack that the felt hat fell off, and Joe walked on it, which insult only afforded him an opportunity for expatriating on the advantages of a rough-and-ready costume, as he folded up the maltreated hat and stuffed it into his pocket. Don't lecture any more. There's a good soul. I have enough all through the week, and like to enjoy myself when I come home. I'll get myself up regardless of expense tomorrow, and be a satisfaction to my friends. I'll leave you in peace if you'll only let your hair grow. "'I'm not aristocratic, but I do object to being seen with a person who looks like a young prize-fighter,' observed Joe severely. "'This unassuming style promotes study, that's why we adopted," returned Laurie, "'who certainly could not be accused of vanity, having voluntarily sacrificed a handsome curly crop to the demand for quarter-inch-long stubble. "'By the way, Joe, I think that little Parker is getting really desperate about Amy.' He talks of her constantly, writes poetry, and moons about in a most suspicious manner. He'd better nip this little passion in the bud, hadn't he? Oh, of course he had. We don't want any more marrying in this family for years to come. Mercy on us, what are the children thinking of? And Joe looked as much scandalized as if Amy and little Parker were not yet in their teens. It's a fast age, and I don't know what we're coming to, ma'am. "'You are a mere infant, but you'll go next, Joe, and will be left lamenting,' said Laurie, "'shaking his head over the degeneracy of the times. "'Don't be alarmed. I'm not one of the agreeable sort. "'Nobody will want me, and it's a mercy, for there should always be one old maid in a family.' "'You won't give anyone a chance,' said Laurie, with a sidelong glance, "'and a little more colour than before in his sunburnt face. "'You won't show the soft side of your character,' "'and if a fellow gets a peep at it by accident and can't help showing that he likes you, "'you treat him as Mrs. Gummidge did her sweetheart, "'throw cold water over him, and get so thorny no one dares touch or look at you. "'I don't like that sort of thing. "'I'm too busy to be worried with nonsense, "'and I think it's dreadful to break up families so. "'Now don't say any more of it. "'Meg's wedding has turned all our heads, "'and we talk of nothing but lovers and such absurdities.' I don't wish to get cross, so let's change the subject. Whatever his feelings might have been, Laurie found a vent for them in a long, low whistle and a fearful prediction as they parted the gate. Mark my words, Joe. You'll go next. Chapter 25. The First Wedding The June roses over the porch were awake bright and early on that morning, "'rejoicing with all their hearts in the cloudless sunshine, "'like friendly little neighbors as they were. "'Quite flushed with excitement were their ruddy faces "'as they swung in the wind, "'whispering to one another what they had seen, "'for some peeped in at the dining-room windows "'where the feast was spread, "'some climbed up to nod and smile at the sisters "'as they dressed the bride, "'others waved a welcome to those who came and went "'on various errands in the garden, porch, and hall.' and all, from the rosiest full-blown flower to the palest baby bud, offered their tribute of beauty and fragrance to the gentle mistress who had loved and tended them for so long. Meg looked like a rose herself, for all that was best and sweetest in her heart and soul seemed to bloom into her face that day, making it fair and tender, with a charm more beautiful than beauty. Neither silk "'Nor orange flowers would she have. "'I don't want a fashionable wedding, "'but only those about me whom I love, "'and to them I wish to look and be my familiar self.' "'So she made her wedding gown herself, "'sewing into it the tender hopes "'and innocent romances of a girlish heart. "'Her sisters braided up her pretty hair, "'and the only ornaments she wore "'were the lilies of the valley, "'which her john liked best of all the flowers that grew.' You do look just like our own dear Meg, only so very sweet and lovely that I should hug you if it wouldn't crumple your dress, cried Amy, surveying her with delight. Then I am satisfied, but please hug and kiss me, everyone, and don't mind my dress. I want a great many crumples of this sort put in it today, and Meg opened her arms to her sisters. Now I am going to tie John's cravat for him, and then stay a few minutes with Father quietly in the study and Meg ran down to perform these little ceremonies, and then to follow her mother wherever she went, conscious that in spite of the smiles on the motherly face, there was a secret sorrow hid in the motherly heart at the flight of the first bird from the nest. As the younger girls stand together, giving the last touches to their simple toilet, it may be a good time to tell of a few changes which three years have wrought in their appearance— for all are looking their best just now. Jo's angles are much softened. She has learned to carry herself with ease, if not grace. The curly crop has lengthened into a thick coil, more becoming to the small head atop of the tall figure. There is a fresh color in her brown cheeks, a soft shine in her eyes, and only gentle words fall from her sharp tongue today. "'Beth has grown slender, pale, and more quiet than ever. "'The beautiful, kind eyes are larger, "'and in them lies an expression that saddens one, "'although it is not sad itself. "'It is the shadow of pain which touches the young face with such pathetic patience, "'but Beth seldom complains, and always speaks hopefully of, being better soon. "'Amy, as with truth, considered the flower of the family.' At sixteen, she has the air and bearing of a full-grown woman, not beautiful, but possessed of that indescribable charm called grace. One saw in it the lines of her figure, the make and motion of her hands, the flow of her dress, the droop of her hair, unconscious yet harmonious, and as attractive to many as beauty itself. Amy's nose still afflicted her, for it never would grow Grecian as did her mouth, being too wide and having a decided chin. These offending features gave character to her whole face, but she never could see it, consoled herself with her womanly fair complexion, keen blue eyes, and curls more golden and abundant than ever. All three wore suits of thin silver-gray, their best gowns for the summer, with blush roses in their hair and bosom, and all three looked just what they were, fresh-faced, happy-hearted girls, Pausing a moment in their busy lives to read with wistful eyes the sweetest chapter in the romance of womanhood, there were to be no ceremonious performances. Everything was to be as natural and homelike as possible. So when Aunt March arrived, she was scandalized to see the bride come running to welcome and lead her in to find the bridegroom fastening up a garland that had fallen down and to catch a glimpse of the paternal minister marching upstairs with a grave countenance and a wine-bottle under each arm. "'Upon my word, here's a state of things,' cried the old lady, taking the seat of honour prepared for her, and settling the folds of her lavender maré with great rustle. "'You oughtn't be seen till the last minute, child. "'I'm not a show, auntie, and no one is coming to stare at me, to criticise my dress,' "'or count the cost of my luncheon. "'I'm too happy to care what anyone says or thinks, "'and I'm going to have my little wedding just as I like it. "'John, dear, here's your hammer, "'and away went Meg to help that man in his highly improper employment. "'Mr. Brooke didn't even say thank you, "'but as he stooped for the unromantic tool, "'he kissed his little bride behind the folding door,' with a look that made Aunt Marge whisk out her pocket-handkerchief with a sudden dew in her sharp old eyes. A crash, a cry, and a laugh from Laurie, accompanied by the indecorous exclamation, "'Jupiter, Ammon!' Joes upset the cake again, caused a momentary flurry which was hardly over when a flock of cousins arrived, and the party came in, as Beth used to say when a child— Don't let that young giant come near me, he worries me worse than mosquitoes, whispered the old lady to Amy, as the rooms filled and Laurie's black head towered above the rest. He has promised to be very good today, and he can be perfectly elegant if he likes, returned Amy, and gliding away to warn Hercules to beware of the dragon, which warning caused him to haunt the old lady with a devotion that nearly distracted her. There was no bridal procession, but a sudden silence fell upon the room as Mr. March and the young couple took their places under the green arch. Mother and sisters gathered close, as if loath to give Meg up. The fatherly voice broke more than once, which only seemed to make the service more beautiful and solemn. The bridegroom's hand trembled visibly, and no one heard his replies, but Meg looked straight up into her husband's eyes and said, "'I will.' "'with such tender trust in her own face and voice "'that her mother's heart rejoiced "'and Aunt March sniffed audibly. "'Jo did not cry, though she was very near at once "'and was only saved from a demonstration "'by the consciousness that Laurie was staring fixedly at her "'with a comical mixture of merriment and emotion "'in his wicked black eyes. "'Beth kept her face hidden on her mother's shoulder,' but Amy stood like a graceful statue, with a most becoming ray of sunshine touching her white forehead and the flower in her hair. It wasn't all a thing, I'm afraid, but the minute she was fairly married, Meg cried. The first kiss for Marmy, and turning, gave it to her with a heart on her lips. During the next fifteen minutes, she looked more like a rose than ever, for every one availed themselves of their privileges to the fullest extent, from Mr. Lawrence to old Hannah, who, adorned with a headdress fearfully and wonderfully made, fell upon her in the hall, crying with a sob and a chuckle, Bless you, dearie, a hundred times, the cake ain't hurt a mite, and everything looks lovely. Everybody cleared up after that, and said something brilliant, or tried to, which did just as well, for laughter is ready when hearts are light. There was no display of gifts, for they were already in the little house— nor was there an elaborate breakfast but a plentiful lunch of cake and fruit dressed with flowers. Mr. Lawrence and Aunt March shrugged and smiled at one another, when water, lemonade, and coffee were found to be the only sorts of nectar which the three heaps carried around. No one said anything till Laurie, who insisted on serving the bride, appeared before her with a loaded salver in his hand and puzzled expression on his face. Has Joe smashed all the bottles by accident, he whispered, or am I merely laboring under a delusion that I saw some lying about loose this morning? No, your grandfather kindly offered us his best, and Aunt March actually sent some, but father put away a little for Beth and dispatched the rest to the soldier's home. You know he thinks that wine should be used only in illness, and mother says that neither she nor her daughters will even offer it to any young man under her roof. After lunch, people strolled about, by twos and threes, through the house and garden, enjoying the sunshine without and within. Meg and John happened to be standing together in the middle of the grass-plot, when Laurie was seized with an inspiration which put the finishing touch to this unfashionable wedding. "'All the married people take hands, and dance round the new-made husband and wife as the Germans do, while we bachelors and spinsters prance in couples outside,' cried Laurie." "'Promenading down the path with Amy with such infectious spirit and skill "'that everyone else followed their example without a murmur. "'Mr. and Mrs. March, Aunt and Uncle Carol began it. "'Others rapidly joined in. "'Even Sally Moffat, after a moment's hesitation, "'threw her train over her arm and whisked Ned into the ring. "'But the crowning joke was Mr. Lawrence and Aunt March.' when the stately old gentleman chased solemnly up to the old lady, she just tucked her cane under her arm and hopped briskly away to join hands with the rest and dance about the bridal pair, while the young folks pervaded the garden like butterflies on a midsummer day. Want of breath brought the impromptu ball to a close, and then people began to go. "'I wish you well, my dear, I heartily wish you well, but I think you'll be sorry for it,' said Aunt March to Meg." "'Adding to the bridegroom as he led her to the carriage, "'You've got a treasure, young man. See that you deserve it. "'That is the prettiest wedding I've been to for an age, Ned, "'and I don't see why, for there wasn't a bit of style about it,' "'observed Mrs. Moffat to her husband as they drove away. "'Lorry, my lad, if you ever want to indulge in this sort of thing, "'get one of those little girls to help you, "'and I shall be perfectly satisfied,' said Mr. Lawrence.' "'I'll do my best to gratify you, sir,' was Laurie's unusually dutiful reply, "'as he carefully unpinned the posy Joe had put in his buttonhole. "'The little house was not far away, "'and the only bridal journey Meg had was the quiet walk with John "'from the old home to the new. "'When she came down looking like a pretty Quakeress "'in her dove-coloured suit and straw-bonnet tied with white, "'they all gathered about her to say good "'as tenderly as if she had been going to make the grand tour. "'Don't feel that I am separated from you, Marmy dear, "'or that I love you any the less for loving John so much,' "'she said, clinging to her mother with full eyes for a moment. "'I shall come every day, father, "'and expect to keep my old place in all your hearts, "'though I am married. "'Beth is going to be with me a great deal, "'and the other girls will drop in now and then "'to laugh at my housekeeping struggles.' Thank you all for my happy wedding day. Goodbye, goodbye. They stood watching her with faces full of love and hope and tender pride as she walked away, leaning on her husband's arm with her hands full of flowers and the June sunshine brightening her happy face, and so Meg's married life began. Thank you so much for joining me for another relaxing literature podcast. This has been Good Wives by Louisa May Alcott, otherwise known as Part 2 of Little Women, Chapters 24 and 25. If you're enjoying this podcast, please consider supporting to help me improve the quality and help me keep up my three-episode-a-week schedule. You can find me on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash relaxing literature, where you can also find a list of the many benefits that I offer to my $5 a month patrons. Please also feel free to let me know if there's another benefit that you'd like me to throw in. You can also follow me on Instagram at RelaxingLiterature Literature and on Twitter at Relaxing Lit A-S-M-R to leave your comments, questions, and suggestions on what you'd like me to read next. Thank you so much for listening, and good night.